Hello and welcome to B2B Better, a podcast for B2B professionals looking to be better than boring with their marketing. My name's Jason. I've spent the last 10 years building content, social, and communication plans to help B2B companies hit their brand and revenue goals. Every week, I break down the strategies and tactics that you should be thinking about in a fun-sized, actionable chunks, usually with an expert from the field. This is real advice for B2B professionals who want to be better. Let's go. Today on B2B Better, I am very excited to be joined by Michelle Garrett, public relations consultant and writer. How are you doing, Michelle? I'm doing very well, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Like with all of my guests, uh, we've been talking on Twitter for a very long time. You were very uh, kind to invite me to uh, host one of your your freelance Twitter chats um, a few months ago, which I really, really enjoyed. I got a lot out of, and I'm so glad that I can bring you onto the podcast and uh, share with my my listeners some of the hard-won PR and communications wisdom that you have picked up over the years. Well, I really appreciate that, Jason. It is such a pleasure, and I uh, really enjoy interacting with you on Twitter. And it's a pleasure to uh, to be here and to be chatting with you today. Before we get into uh, PR and communications and, and how B two B businesses can do it, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, um, your uh, public relations consultancy, um, and a little bit about a little bit about your background? How did you end up where you are today? Well, I um, I always wanted to write from, you know, pretty early on. You know, I worked for the high school paper and in college. I wrote, you know, I, I, I was a journalism major, so we wrote for the Lantern at Ohio State is the paper there. And um, my focus within journalism then ended up being public relations. And so um, I felt like I could take my writing abilities and, um, you know, combine it with PR and and it would make a great career. And it has, Um, you know, I have done all kinds of things over the years. I have worked in-house, I worked at agencies, I worked at uh, startups. um, And then when I went out on my own, um, I had a chance to uh, do that, you know, for clients that were really um, big clients, like including HP, for example, and then also smaller startups because I started my business out in the Bay Area where there are a lot of tech startups. They all have funding. They all need help. And so that's um, that's eventually how I ended up um, on my own. That's great. So your experience is, is pretty broad. And, and for today, I'd like us to talk a little bit more about that latter group of companies that you just mentioned, startups um, that have perhaps secured some degree of funding, um, but really are at the beginning and early stages of building out uh, a PR and communication strategy. So for those kind of clients, um, what would you be saying to them about why PR and comms is important for a startup? Well, I, um, you know, honestly, if no one knows about your business, no one can visit your business, right? So um, I really think it's important that you, A, figure out, you know, who your audience is, where they are spending time, and then, um, you know, being able to get the word out and communicate clearly about what you are bringing to that audience. And I think that's a big challenge, uh, because a lot of times startups just you know, somebody has an idea for something and they kind of rush out. They may not really even know who they are, understand who their audience is. And those things are so important to be crystal clear about before you really, 
you know, before it's time to start communicating to your audience. So if you were in a position where you were advising a founder or a CEO who, you know, was saying to themselves, look, I need to get out there. We need to be in the media. We need the world to know about us. We need to build a communication strategy. You know, what would your 100-day plan look like for that startup uh, when it came to building out a, a PR component of their marketing strategy? That is um, it's a tall order because every uh, startup is different, of course. And I think the first thing, uh, kind of back to the previous point, is that they need to be correctly positioned and they need to have their messaging in order. And a lot of times if you bring in a you know, an experienced uh, PR pro, they can help you with that. If you have not been able to do that on your own, they, that's part of the work that we do sometimes. And then once you have the messaging, just coming up with a plan to get it out. And I think, you know, a lot of times with startups, you're going to have maybe different messages for different audiences. So developing sometimes even a messaging matrix, for example, to kind of reach out to different um, different segments of your audience and then doing research about where they are spending time and how to reach them. That may not always mean getting an article in TechCrunch or getting an article in the Wall Street Journal. Of course, that's what every startup dreams about, but sometimes that is not necessarily going to get them as far as getting something um, in a publication that their audience reads or a blog or, you know, on social media where they spend time or something like that. So I think it's really important to research, work on your messaging and develop the strategy based on that research. It's really interesting that I, I you know, I think it's, uh, you see it all the time. Um, and I'm sure you, you come across it every single day. Uh, companies that think that PR is just putting into writing every little detail of what's happening in your business and thinking that it's something that journalists and the media are going to want to pick up and throw on the front page of their of their website or their paper or what have you and you know getting that messaging right you know what is the substance what is the story that we're trying to so, convey to the market is, is so important um, and uh, you mentioned there a messaging matrix walk me through through that a little bit well, I think in in my mind, and this is, <laughs> I wish I could show an example, but in my mind, there's kind of an overarching message or theme that would relate to probably every piece, every communication that you would put out, um, you know, wherever it might be. And then kind of underneath that are supporting almost pillars or uh, key points under that kind of that umbrella overarching message. So... For example, I have a client um, that is a technology company, but they play to different audiences. And so we kind of worked on that based on, you know, they're going to have like um, a seller audience and they're going to have a buyer audience. And then they're also going to have some uh, some trade um, publications that they want to, you know, reach out to. And so we, we might tweak those messages a little bit depending on who it is. So that's mm, what I'm thinking. Yeah. Absolutely. And what would you say there, you know, in technology, particularly, there are some highly complex businesses, even at a startup stage, you know, their proposition may be um, something that is designed for an incredibly niche or technical audience. Um, so, and, and sometimes when you're trying to kind of convey that into a piece of communications, it can be 
quite difficult to really kind of break through to to the nut of the story, um, something that's actually going to make it into the media. You know, what would be your advice for a company like that that perhaps is dealing with quite a complicated subject matter? You know, mm-hmm. how what are some of the steps that they can take to kind of break that down to its kind of core compelling media ready parts? It's really challenging, um, honestly, to do that. And I think some brands do it better than others. And it's so, I think sometimes it's almost trial and error. You have to kind of, you know, like A-B testing almost. You have to see which messages are resonating um, with your with your key um, target audience. I think it can be something that you have to experiment with. And um, especially early on, don't be afraid to experiment because, you know, you really don't want to be sinking a lot of time or money into a strategy or a message um, that isn't resonating. Mm, Yeah. I was looking at your blog the other day and I saw a great piece, um, which really made me chuckle about <laughs> kind of pay, paid PR. Um, and you gave a great example um, that kind of kicked off uh, the inspiration of the piece, which is you, I think you'd received an email or which was kind of promising saying that you'd won an award or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the privilege to have that news published in the publication, they were going to charge you $5,000, um, which we've, we've, which we've all received. And I, mm-hmm. I'm still looking for the person who's paid that $5,000 for, for, for that privilege. Um, but, you know, for a someone who's building out a marketing strategy, a PR comm strategy within a startup, yeah. you know, perhaps they're not a marketing PR person by trade. Maybe it's the founder or, or just someone else in the business. That can seem like an easy win. You know, hey, we won something and all we got to do is just cut a check for $5,000 and then, hey, we can pass this all over our website. It's going to be in this publication. Isn't that going to be great? should brands do that should 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 startups do that (laughs) wow we could talk about this for the whole the entire podcast um i thank you for reading that by the way i i felt that one you know like i felt like that needed to be to be written because i am seeing more of this and i have been talking to other pr colleagues who are also seeing this especially they were talking about instagram is has been very um people over there have been dming them with offers and opportunities and they're not real uh because they're paid and i'm not saying that you should never pay to promote your business i'm just saying you want to be very selective and careful about it and you also don't want to fall for something that someone tries to tell you is earned media a pr opportunity if you're paying it is not earned media let's just be very clear about it paid media has a place in the strategy but when people try to pull the wool over your eyes and not just be clear and upfront and honest about what it is you're paying for. That's when I get upset. And that's when I, I feel like we need to educate because I just not long ago, um, briefly worked with a company who was doing exactly what you said. They were new, um, and they were trying to get off the ground. And of course, no one had heard of them and no one was going to write about them necessarily, you know, in the initial stages while they're, you know, getting everything together and getting ready to kind of make a splash. And so the marketing director paid for some awards and some other things that they were trying to pass off as earned media. And it was just, you know, it just, it it just feels wrong. It feels, I, I can't even describe, it makes me 
feel icky. You know, it's just, it's just not something that I would ever recommend doing for any company at any stage because it actually can harm the brand more than it would help them because some people, I mean, more and more people, I think, understand that when they see these things, they're not real, if anybody even sees it, because a lot of these um, organizations that do this are not anything anybody really pays attention to. So, hmm. Like you say, there is, you know, w- what you're saying here is not that paid media is bad. There is always a place for paid media, um, and there is a strategy that needs to underpin that. Um but it's about being selective in, in what you choose to pay for. Um, but what, what would be your kind of, I think, you know, it's easy for us as communication professionals who get bombarded with this stuff all the time to say, well, that's clearly fake. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's clearly not going to deliver the results that they're promising. Um, but for someone who perhaps doesn't have that intuition, um, it, what would be your kind of warning signs, your red flags to look out for um, when an offer comes into your inbox like that? Well, they try to appeal to the ego. So they'll use words like, oh, you know, we, you, we want to feature you. And I, in fact, I'm, I've just gotten a third message from this, uh, this, this company that's trying to sell TV news features, I guess. And it's like, be featured on national TV. Well, sure, for twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, of course, you know, yeah. If you read the fine print, or sometimes you even, they even make you schedule a appointment, a call with them to get the details. And so I've walked into those situations before with clients where they're kind of far down that path. They may not have signed the papers yet, but they're talking to them. And I'm like, Ooh, you know, this, you know what this really is. It may not be what you think it is. So I, you know, as long as they're clear, I mean, if, if that's what they want to do, of course, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you can't necessarily stop them, but I am just, really trying to educate and help people make good decisions because think, you know, if it, I mean, seriously, the, the TV opportunities can be very expensive. Think about what you could do with that instead. So that's, I just think you need to be, you know, you need to understand that. Hyper vigilant. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we understand why PR is important in the early days and some of the things that you can kind of start to do and importantly not do um, when you're, when you're kicking off a comm strategy, you know, I think uh, one of the easiest stories in my experience to place in the media um, often come when you can go to the press with a partner or a client. Mm -hmm. Um, So, hey, we just signed this big name and we're really excited to be working with them on X. Um, But sometimes, you know, clients are unwilling or unable to talk. You know, maybe the industry is, you know, maybe it's a government contract or, you know, maybe, you know, from my my experience working in the world of sports, a lot of our clients um, have sponsorships with brands you know brands are paying for the right to be associated with that company or that or that that kind of media property um Mm -hmm. so why would they give it away for free to one of their tech vendors that they're paying so what would be your advice well you know we know that credibility is important that working with clients is a good way in the early days of building that credibility Mm -hmm. you know how do you get around that in the early days if you're working with clients that are unwilling or unable to talk to the media with you well, it is um, kind of a cornerstone of a lot of what we do in PR is, you know, using clients or customers to help tell that story. Um, sometimes uh, I, I, with case studies, you can you can get around it a little bit if you talk about, you know, a leading, you know, company in the technology field or, you know, whatever. Just you can't name the company, but you can 
allude to the fact that you're working with somebody who's, you know, a big company or something like that. And you can keep it anonymous. Um, I don't think it's as effective, but a lot of times, to your point, um, their legal team will not allow them to endorse a vendor or a company. Um, and they just kind of have a blanket policy not to do any media interviews. Um, a lot of times with um, startups, I will try to tell them if they can to get that written into the contract that the client will speak or will be featured in a press release or will allow them to put their name on their website, so, you know, something that will let us have a little bit of leeway there, but it's not always easy to do. In, in my because I've done the I've done the exact same um, with the commercial teams that I've worked worked with. You know, I've said let's get it into writing in the early stages. You know, in the contract that we want to be, uh, we want we want X number of opportunities to reach out to the media, or we want you to come and speak on our panel, or you know, attend this event with us, or whatever. And uh, f- from experience, it's typically the first thing to get cut in the negotiation process. Um, you know, uh, I've seen clients that have used it as leverage um, in, in, the, in the negotiation process. So I think my, my tip here would be think of everything that you could possibly want from that client mm-hmm. and get that all into the contract when you're kind of sending it over for the first time. They're going to cut 95% of it. But they, if you put a lot of stuff in mm-hmm. there, then you know they typically won't, in my experience, get rid of everything. Um, they'll get rid of a lot of it and they'll feel good in doing that. But unless there is a, you know, uh, a legal or a commercial reason not to do, uh, to, to, to do media opportunities like government work or something like that, mm-hmm. um, they'll leave something, you know, and, and, and they'll probably leave the smallest thing, but even just a little bit of a opening in the door can lead to bigger things later down the line. And it's better to get it in writing to your point at the early stages rather than asking for it right on the cusp of a launch or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. Another piece I was reading on your blog, um, which I'm going to put a link to, by the way, in the description of this of this episode, because it really is a fantastic piece of PR and communications um, uh, learning. Um, well, you were talking a little bit about kind of reactive and proactive PR. Um, and mm-hmm. I want to get an understanding from you on what the difference is between those two things. And for a startup in particular, what's the most beneficial to pursue in the early days? Yes, well, this is another point that I think I think needs to be made because again, I had been hearing some things about some um, PR agencies or consultants who rely heavily on reactive versus proactive. Again, not saying you don't need to have reactive and proactive both. However, I define reactive as responding to incoming inquiries from the media. Or it could be things like responding to inquiries from the media who post in um, on platforms like Help a Reporter Out. And I know there are some other ones. Quoted is another one. Um, there, there are probably others as well. Um, but HARO or Help a Reporter Out is pretty well known um, within the, the PR industry. Um, and, you know, that's journalists posting for sources to reply So it's reactive. Um, Now, if you're only doing those things, reactive PR, you know, first of all, if you're a newer company, no one 
has heard of you and no one will be proud, you know, actively reaching out to you to react. They will not be proactively <laughs> reaching out is what I was trying to say. So that's not going to work. Right. And Haro help a reporter may work, but you certainly wouldn't want to just pin your whole strategy, all your efforts on that. So re uh, proactive PR is more about figuring out which reporters or media outlets, um, or, you know, wherever, whatever you're looking at, which one of those um, would be the best fit, and then coming up with story ideas to pitch to them, and writing out a pitch, and probably sending it via email. Sometimes you can pitch over, you know, a Twitter DM or something like that. But then that's kind of um, doing more proactive PR than just sitting back and waiting for inquiries to come in. That's interesting. Well, how would you define um, PR? So, so, so one, so something that I've I've tried out before in startups is, you know, it's one thing to drum up an announcement on, you know, a new client you've won or a new feature that you're releasing on your product or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you see something happening in your space or your industry that it makes sense for you as a brand to have an opinion on, mm-hmm. you know, let's say that you are a I don't know mobile app developer and ios uh, apple release a new ios update um like the data privacy stuff that's going on at the moment Mm -hmm. um so you know i'm a mobile app developer it makes sense i have an opinion on this my clients expect me to have an opinion on this so i'm going to reach out to the media Mm -hmm. and offer up that opinion because obviously they're going to be writing a lot about it and you know possibly could could benefit from an external view how would you define that against the kind of proactive, reactive PR approach? I think it's it's falls in proactive, and I would call it newsjacking because you're taking a trend or you know a breaking story, and you are trying to um, kind of hop on that you know that trend and and be heard, have your perspective be heard. And one thing I would say about Twitter is that it's a great place to share your views. I have had I've shared things on there, you know, my perspective on a crisis or something in the news and i've had reporters call me or contact me for a comment so they do reporters are on twitter and they do watch and so even even if you're proactively pitching to your say your local media you know so you can be featured in a story or something you can also go ahead and just post on twitter for example at the same time and perhaps then you know a journalist will see that and and contact you um to to comment this is a nice segue into my next set of questions um, because we've spoken a lot about some of the ideas that you could uh, employ when building out a communication strategy. Newsjacking is a really cool term. Um, I don't know if it's a kind of US uh, British thing, but we call it issue jumping. <laughs> unless, I'm, So, uh, you know, maybe across the pond um, uh, differentiation there. Um, but you mentioned there about kind of journalists picking up the phone and, and calling you. And, you know, that only happens when you build a relationship with that journalist. The journalist, as you say, uh, knows who you are. So let's start here. When you're starting a communications strategy, you know, how can you find the right journalists to pitch to? Yes. Well, and this is very important because it used to be that, you know, when we uh, pitched, we would, you know, say you're working at an agency, they would give you a list of 50 or 100 or however many reporters, and you would literally you know, call down the list, they called it smile and dial, and you would just (laughs) call every single one with the very same pitch. That does not work 
I don't know if it ever worked, but it definitely doesn't work now. So (laughs) (laughs) now we need to um, use other um, techniques. I mean, traditionally, a media database has been helpful, but you don't necessarily need a media database, which can be expensive if you buy a subscription to one. And I'm talking about like a scission or a meltwater when I say that. And there are others, of course. Um, You know, those are thousands of dollars a year. So you can do your own research online. You could just go, you know, research a, a reporter on the, you know, publications website or the outlet, the media outlets website and build a list that way. Uh, Twitter is another great place to search. And then, of course, once you've found reporters on there that you want to follow and and perhaps target, you should really start building a relationship probably before you even need or want to pitch them a story. And how do you go about building up that relationship? It's not something that I expect happens overnight. It's something that takes time and dedication. So what would be your kind of tips and advice there on building a a longstanding and successful relationship with a journalist? Well, I really think about it like this because journalists are people too. And of course, everybody on social media wants people to like and share their work. Um, They want you to engage most of the time. I'm not going to say every journalist wants to be chatting with you on Twitter, but there are, I, you know, I have relationships with journalists um, who we will just exchange, you know, friendly banter with um, each other over there without any, you know, that has nothing to do with any of my clients or anything I'm pitching or anything they're working on. It's just, you know, we're just chatting about life or hobbies or pets or kids or whatever it is, you know, you see something. I think yesterday um, I saw a journalist talking about, oh, here in Ohio, we have a vaccination lottery and she was posting about it. And I just wrote back and said, oh, gee, thanks for the reminder. You know, we have to sign up for that once we've been vaccinated. So, um, yeah, so I just sent her a funny gif and, and you know, but I mean, I'm not pitching her and I'm not working with her right now. So um, it's just you know, I think you just need to look at them like people and treat them, you know, the same way you would treat, you know, any professional colleague or, you know, I don't know. I don't know why this is, it's, to me, it's not hard, but I know some people struggle with it. I think it's also about delivering value, right? Just like you would in a content marketing strategy, you know, if you're just going to write blog posts and, and social media posts about yourself, um, that doesn't really offer any value to anyone. It's just kind of looking in the mirror. You're not going to get any any followers or any people visiting your blog. Um, but if you can offer value, and it kind of goes back to that newsjacking thing, right? You know, you may send a memo or a note to a journalist 10 times saying like, this is really important and here's why we think it's important and here's what it means for the industry at large. You know, if you do that consistently over a period of time, they may not pick it up, they may not use it straight away, but there will come a point when, you know, another story like that breaks in, in the media and uh, they're expecting it from you, you know, and they know who to call because you've been there mm-hmm. uh, 10 times prior, giving them something that's going to make their job easier. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's an understanding of the story uh, at a level of detail that they just, you know, wouldn't have without doing some some serious research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. If you prove that you're 
you know, you're consistently there and you're, you know, you're willing to help and you're, you know, a lot of times it does take a long time. And I, I people, clients don't want to hear that, but, um, you know, it, it can take a while. I mean, you know, it's been, I've had months go by and then all of a sudden, I think a lot of reporters will file story pitches away until they are working on something um, that, you know, that they might, that it might relate to. And then they'll go in their file and pull it out and give you, a, you know, send you an email or contact you. So. Mm, absolutely. Before we go on and talk about client expectations, you, you mentioned there um, a couple of platforms, uh, Meltwater, mm-hmm. Sisian. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's one called Gorkana. I'm not sure if that's UK based only or, or, or not, but these are basically big databases filled with journalist information, right? So mm-hmm. who they're writing for, what their email address is, their beat. Do you, do you, for a startup, put much stock in them in the early days? Um, or do you think kind of going on platforms like Twitter is, is the better course of action? I wouldn't. I would not spend thousands of dollars on a media database if I were a startup and had a limited budget. And I honestly, I don't even know if I recommend them for bigger clients anymore. I, I'll just tell you, I was just using one on behalf of a client, and I'm not going to name which one it was, but you know, a lot of the information was out of date. I was able to find information that was more up to date on my own. And I had in fact do that because <laughs> when I went with the information in the database, the email would bounce or, you know, it just, I was kind of like, wow, I, I know I can't recommend that they renew this next year for $5,000 or whatever it is they paid because it's just, you know, it's sadly out of date. Yeah, that's that's been my experience too. I mean, these are effectively just spreadsheets, right? Um, they may be kind of uh, prettied up in a nice-looking UI, but essentially it's just a spreadsheet of information um, pertaining to journalists' uh, contact information and their bead and things like that. And the ones I've used, um, as you say, have either been out of date or some or something that I could just find on my own um, on my own accord um, with with an afternoon's work. Um, talking about platforms in, in, in a similar vein then what do you think about things like pr newswire and, and mm. things like that um because they can be quite costly too mm-hmm. i mean you know it's uh we're talking thousands of dollars yes. potentially to get a press release out there depending on kind of what region you want to target it at um is that something that that you're recommending to your clients it bugs me to know that the wire service is like so much more that i charge to write the press release that's really <laughs> bothersome to me so um, I, again, I, I'm no, nothing I say would be a hundred percent true in every case. So I always like to just preface it like that. But, and again, like, I mean, I, you know, yes, I have used wire services. Yes. Occasionally I have clients that want to use a wire service. Um, they used to have more value in search than they do now. I think everybody in, in the SEO world would tell you that there's not much value there now. Um, you know, it might come up for a day or two in the search, but it's really not, you know, it's not the long-term um, SEO value. So um, the one that I use for clients that are smaller or on a budget is PR Web, and that's a Cision-owned mm. product, but it's a little bit less expensive than, than a PR Newswire. And you can send out a press release for $289. It's limited. Um, it's not limited, actually, because like if you use a PR Newswire, they limit you to 400 words. And then every hundred words after that, they're going to charge you more. They're going to charge you more for a photo if you want to include that. They're going to charge you more if you want to send it out uh, nationally versus regionally. 
and PR web doesn't do that. Now, some people would say a PR newswire would get you, um, you know, better results. I just don't really know if that's true anymore. Mm -hmm. Again, trial and error, I think, in the, in the early days, but it can be a bit of a, it can be a bit of a, uh, a cash suck um, because, as you say, some of these some of these bigger newswire services. Um, I remember once I got close to um, five figures for for a press release mm -hmm. being sent out um, to to a global database. And in the early days, I mean, that's that is like five figures that could be spent a lot better um, in in most cases. Um, I want to pick up on something that you said uh, right at the beginning of this episode, which is about you know how every startup's dream is to get onto the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And mm -hmm. I have been on the receiving end plenty of times um, from uh, from CEOs and other executive board members who uh, want us to get onto the front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and the story we have about this kind of minute uh, new feature uh, release on our platform is going to do it. And that's so often not the case. Um, mm -hmm. In your opinion, what, what takes a story from being what I'd call a trade story, so something that has a good chance of being picked up by the kind of trade-specific publications in your industry to something that would be picked up by the mainstream media like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times? Well, I mean, the way I look at this is that a lot of times um, the reporters at top tier publications are looking at and reading trade publications to get ideas or do research. And so if you are able to get a story in a trade publication, there is a chance that somebody at a um, bigger publication will take notice of that. And so that's why I like the approach of going with the lower hanging fruit, which I think a lot of companies overlook trade publications, but they, they are really one of the best ways, I think, to, you know, get value from your PR effort, because they're always looking for content. Sometimes they need contributed articles. Sometimes they do feature new product news, which a lot of publications, especially the bigger ones, do not care about your product or your new feature or whatever. They don't care about that. So um, I think you just have more, you might have more luck that way, even local media, perhaps not every business, you know, cares about that. I have clients that don't really care about the local media at all. Um, uh, but you're kind of working your way up. So you're not starting out with like, going after the Wall Street Journal, but you're kind of maybe, you know, with an eye toward that at some point, when you actually have something you know, really big and newsworthy that you could pitch to them. Um, you've already laid the groundwork. And so when that reporter goes to do their research, like, oh, my gosh, look at all these stories that have been written, even if it's trade publications or local media, there's something out there for them to find. Mm, that's great advice. Do you think there is such a thing as a quick PR win? You said earlier that there is a, you know, a lot of clients expect things to happen quickly but often it's it's not the case you're not going to find overnight success it takes time to build mm -hmm. up these journalist relationships to find your messaging but you know going back to that 100 days first 100 days you mm -hmm. know someone who's been tasked with building out a PR and communication strategy within their startup mm -hmm. you know is there a, a quick PR win from your perspective well you know in PR we never like to guarantee or promise and if anyone ever does that in PR you should run away from them very quickly because that, <laughs> that's not something you know, even if we, I would say, even if we get an interview or an opportunity, until it actually appears, you know, is published or appears on the air or whatever it might be, it's not, 
you know, you can't consider it a done deal because something had happened in this, you know, era we live in now with breaking news, 24-7 breaking news. Anything could bump it, you know, sometimes, you know, it runs later. I've had them where they just cut it entirely because it was timely, but then it wasn't, you know. So, and again, clients are very disappointed in this, but we're not, it's not an ad. We're not paying for the time, the space, it's, it's, it's earned. So with that said, I think a quick win um, is never something you should promise. But if you are on the PR side of things and you want to try to get a quick win, um, certainly things like, um, you know, if you have a relationship with a reporter at a trade publication or a local, uh, you know, someone in the local media, you could probably shoot an idea over um, and, you know, you would probably know what they write and what they would like. That would be my best advice or a contributed article. Perhaps a lot of publications are looking to fill their space and will accept contributed articles. Now that means you have to have somebody to write it. A lot of times, you know, I ghostwrite, I will pitch place and ghostwrite the story for a client. Sometimes clients like to write their own stories, but just understand that situation. They're going to say, well, we want a thousand words by Tuesday. You're going to have to be able to deliver to get that opportunity. So there's Mm -hmm. that. Such good advice, and and like you say, it's until you, until it's in print, it's it's not a win. Um, I have been burnt a number of times um, where you know a story in my head has been a done deal, um, mm-hmm. but then for whatever reason, the, something's gone wrong at a you know when you're working with a client, like something goes wrong at the project level, and they suddenly use that PR opportunity you've been collaborating on for months as as leverage to kind of get that fixed um you know maybe something goes down or something mm-hmm. um and uh, and then that all that work that you've been putting in is is all for naught um so yeah uh, i i couldn't agree more with that statement the one thing i'd say i've seen some success with um is is research right or numbers or stats mm-hmm. or things like that particularly with the trade journals you know it doesn't take too much effort i think to commission uh pointed consumer survey um that you can you know 10 questions or something um even if you're b2b right you know your clients may be ones that are uh selling services or products directly onto consumers if you could use something like survey monkey or um or a test or something like that to quickly drum up a consumer survey um mm-hmm. that's not just fluff or, or or crap but you know actually real pointed um relevant uh, questions to the company's customers that you're serving um i've seen that be picked up more often than not particularly at the trade journals because it's an easy win story for them right you know it's it's something that everyone that should be reading their publication would be interested in mm-hmm. yeah i agree they usually journalists love numbers and stats and research and so if you can do that in an incredible way of course you know you want to be careful you know that it is credible i had a client course, once yeah. had five respondents to a survey and tried to pass it off as like, you know, one fifth or, you know, two thirds. <laughs> I'm like, well, it was five people, you know, let's be honest. So, I mean, you know, they're going to see through that. A good journalist would, you know, look under the hood on that. So, <laughs> five people that work for the company yeah. as well the, the CEO, their son, uh, their best mate, their plumber. Um, yeah, they all think it's, it's great. Um, yeah, credi- credibility is absolutely key. And also, you know, it goes back to that relationship point, right, with the journalist. If if you send them something which is very obviously, um, you know, not credible because it is just the five people that currently work in the office saying that they've done a survey, um, 
you know, you could close the door potentially forever with that journalist and anything that you do send them in the future that may be interesting or credible will just fall on deaf ears because, you know, you've wasted their time. Absolutely. Hmm. What do you think is the biggest uh, comms mistake that a startup marketing team can make in the early days? Well, I mean, going crazy with the spending um, because I've worked with startups who just kind of blew their budget on, you know, trade shows or giveaways for trade shows and boxes and boxes of T-shirts or coffee mugs or like, I mean, I'm, you know, I just sometimes you just shake your head. You're like, no, <laughs> that's not that wasn't a good, you know, uh, commitment there to make. But um, sometimes you're too late, you know, to save them from themselves. But um you know, you have to really back to the trial and error um, in the early days, experiment to see what's working, and then just don't spend too much money until you kind of have a pretty good idea, um, you know, what you think is, is gaining traction. Mm. Everyone does love a branded pen, though, Michelle. <laughs> and isn't that what marketing is all about? Just branding swag. <laughs> you think You think that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Two more questions and I'm going to let you go. Uh, what do you think is going to be the biggest change in how B2B companies market themselves in the next five years? Well, I really feel like this um, biz- business to human uh, idea is going mm. to continue to catch on. I think it already is. But, you know, instead of thinking of it like B2B, B2C, it's really business to human. The buyer is a human. The person behind the computer is a human um, you know, it may be a longer sales cycle for B2B. You may need some more content along the way, some more, you know, along the journey to, to purchasing. But I feel like um, focusing on the, the humanistic side, the storytelling side, um, that is going to continue to gain traction and grow as a, as a, you know, as a something to pay attention to in B2B. Hmm. It's not just about educating um, B2B buyers anymore. It's also about finding ways that you can kind of entertain and engage them. And I'm, I suppose in PR, you know, finding ways to draw connections between uh, a B2B company's products and services and mission to things like, you know, what's happening in the wider in the wider world or perhaps even in pop culture or things like that um, can be a good way to cut through the noise, would you say? Yes, I do. I think that appeals to everybody. It doesn't matter, you know, what if you're, you know, what kind of company it is. I just, there's some principles about it that just make sense, really. It's common sense. Mm, 100%. And final question for you. Um, if you could suggest one person mm-hmm. to for me to interview next on B2B Better, who is it you would suggest? Have you talked to Doug Kessler ever? Do you know, Doug, I have not. I, I follow him mm-hmm. on Twitter and I love everything that Velocity does do um i think they are just the top of their game uh doug and i did once talk on twitter and i remember he said to me my brother's name's jason so i won't forget you um so i've never spoken to him but i really i really admire him and really respect what he's doing he's great and that would be a person um you know in the b2b space that i think you know has a lot of really he's he just he delivers it in such kind of a different um out-of-the-box way and he he really focuses a lot on on his words and and the way he writes is is unique and and i i feel like he has a lot to to bring and to say to the b2b world so i think when i was starting out uh b2b better i wrote up a list of um of dream guests uh and I think Doug was on there. So I have to dig that up. 
and uh, I may be hitting you up for an introduction soon. Yeah, he's in London, I think. So. Yeah, good good time yeah. zone. Time zone. Michelle, this has been <laughs> yeah exactly. Michelle, this has been uh, fantastic. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, and um, you've delivered some amazing practical actionable insights that I think a startup could take and you know get a good way along on their PR and communications journey um, before I let you go tell us a little bit about where we can uh, follow you and learn more a little learn a little bit more about your your services sure um, thank you for having me so much today um, for anyone who wants to know more about me my website is michellegarrett.com that's two L's two R's and two T's I always say <laughs> Um, and then I am very active on Twitter at PR is us. It's P R I S U S. And, um, I'm over there a lot. I answer questions. I start conversations. I engage in conversations, which is how you and I got to know each other. And I also host a Twitter chat every Thursday at noon for freelancers called freelance chat. And we've also launched a brand new chat for PR and communications pros, which is Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern called Calm Pros Chat. I did not know about that second one. That is very exciting. And I'm definitely going to join that next week. Yes, thank you. Yes, we're trying to get it off the ground. Becky um, uh, Winchell from uh, PR Daily, people may know her, and I are co-hosting that. And so we'd switch off every week. But, um, you know, it's... It's it's gaining traction, you know. It's 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 hard to start a Twitter chat, so we'd love to have uh, people tune in if they're available. Definitely, I'll drop the uh, I'll drop those uh, those those Twitter chat um, hashtags in the description of this episode. But Michelle Garrett, thank you so much for coming on to be be to be better. I've really enjoyed this chat. Thank you so much, Jason. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you found it useful, go ahead and leave a rating, a review, or just shoot me a DM on Twitter telling me so. It will make my day. You can find me at Jason R. Bradwell. Also, why not check out my weekly newsletter, The B2B Byte, where I break down marketing strategies and tactics for B2B leaders into fun size, actionable chunks. You can find the link in the description of this episode. If you've got any questions or there is a burning topic that you'd like to hear me talk about on B2B Better, or you'd like to appear on an episode, you can connect with me on Twitter or find me on LinkedIn. See you next time.